Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Some time ago, and I want to say it was about six months ago, but maybe a bit longer, I spoke to Andrew Macken of Montica Global Investments, and he gave really the best articulation of why to invest in tech. Of any guests we've had, we've probably been talking about it for four years, uh, but it was a beautiful encapsulation of what tech, particularly global tech, and US tech offers that's really hard to get elsewhere on the stock market. So yes, less than a year later, US tech stocks are looking either much more attractive, some of our investors would look at it that way, or much more worrying, depending on your perspective. Things have changed a lot. So to get an update on what's changed and why and what you might like to do about it, today, Andrew's kindly joined us again. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gemma. And the coolest part about this conversation is you're joining us from the US, so it's not like we're sitting in a room in Sydney doing this. You're you're much closer to the action, even though theoretically with tech, it shouldn't make that much difference. No, that's right. I'm joining from the uh, New York winter and um, very jealous of your uh, Australian summer. (laughs) Oh, it's absolutely torrential rain here at the moment, so you're missing missing absolutely nothing. (laughs) So Andrew, for those who didn't hear our original conversation, do you mind recapping the reason why investors have been willing to pay such a premium for tech stocks over the last decade or more. And one of the things I appreciated so much about the first time you talked us through this was you said, you know, you'd come from a value investing background, which a lot of our investors have, that's what they've learned and came to realize that you need to apply somewhat different metrics. Yeah, exactly right. So, um, you know, as a value investor, the, the, most important rule is not to overpay for assets. And so I guess it's it's strange to some people for a, a value investor to find themselves gravitating towards the tech space where valuation multiples. And, and so whether that's, you know, business value divided by earnings or business value divided by um, this year's revenues um, are generally much higher uh, than in other sectors. And so like, how, how do you square that circle? And one of the things we sort of explored last time around was just kind of thinking through, you know, under what conditions could it actually make sense for valuation multiples of businesses, particularly tech businesses to be much higher. And we, we kind of stepped through a, a couple of examples. Um, I mean, so one reason why a valuation multiple could be really high is just that the stock is overvalued. And that's, I mean, you've got to acknowledge that right up front. And I think you've certainly seen quite a bit of that over the course of the last three to six months uh, in particular. Um, but there are other reasons why valuation multiples could and should be higher. So one is to do with interest rates. Um, we touched on that. Um, obviously, if interest rates are very, very low, then all else being equal, the same set of cash flows are more valuable to you as, as the owner of those cash flows versus say if you, know, if, if you could put your money in the bank and earn 7% or something um, quite high, then you know that same set of cash flows from say owning an equity um, is sort of worth relatively less to you. So uh, low interest rates, higher multiples. Um, so that's that certainly is, is something to consider. Another 
example we explored was for businesses, and this is particularly relevant to businesses um, in the tech space, particularly in the software segment within tech. Um, businesses that have a high probability that their future earnings power will be materially higher than it is today. And importantly, if they don't actually have to invest as much capital to generate that higher level of earnings power, then that is a very logical reason for the valuation multiple being higher. Because if, you know, put simply, if all the value is in the future, then um, dividing by today's earnings to get your multiple or dividing by today's revenues to get your multiple, um, it logically should be a much higher number. And in the in the tech space, and particularly the software space as well, um, one of the inherent characteristics of the economics of these businesses is that they're typically capital, or the capital intensity of these businesses is typically lower. Um, so they don't have to typically spend as much to generate the growth versus say like a, you know, an industrial conglomerate or, or sort of a physical business or like a mining company or something of that nature. And then the inherent characteristics of software around like, you know, essentially zero marginal costs to reproduce and sort of zero marginal costs to distribute around the world are just sort of really nice sort of economic characteristics of those businesses. And, and so we sort of, we touched on those three and said, you know, there are good reasons for valuation multiples being higher. I'd, I'd also actually throw out one more um, just for today, which is uh, really reflecting on some thinking that we've been doing over the last little while. And it, it, it really applies to th thinking about the, earnings multiples, so value of business divided by current year's earnings, of companies that are really big spenders on R&D, research and development, and for which the, the probability of meaningful returns stemming from that R&D investment uh, is quite high. And if you have that situation, and we do actually see that situation today, particularly in the, you know, the the bigger tech companies, particularly the hyperscalers, um, these businesses are spending, you know, between 30 and 40 billion US dollars uh, this year, and that number will keep growing in R&D. Because, just an interesting quirk of the, of the accounting rules, because um, under the accounting rules, R&D needs to be completely expensed, it basically means that that significant R&D depresses this year's earnings. But the truth is that, I mean, this, these R&D investments, they're, they're not expenses at all. They're actually investments into the future and they're investments that will yield higher returns or higher earnings power in the future. And so you've sort of got a situation where the more they spend on R&D today, to the extent that R&D has a high probability of generating meaningful returns in the future, and we believe that that is the case for many of these leading tech businesses, then you've got a situation where the more you spend today, the, the higher the future earnings power is, but then the lower <laughs> the denominator is, if you like, 
in your valuation multiple. So that can also lead to a distortion where you would end up, even though the business was doing really good things and increasing the value of the business, you'd actually end up with a business that increasingly looked optically more expensive because the the value divided by this year's um, earnings uh, is, is much, much higher. So, yeah, I added a fourth one for today. Um, and if I can think of others, then <laughs> we'll uh, add them on to the, the next time we talk. We've got a bonus. Got a bonus reason why you pay more for tech. <laughs> one question that I uh, didn't give you before we spoke, but it just seems really obvious to ask at this point in time. There's a lot of things labelled tech in inverted commas. Yeah. Uh, and the average retail investor probably doesn't look at you know, the gig sectors or anything like that when they're investing. There's just this sort of loose category of tech and anything that could slap a tech label on itself has done so in the last little while, particularly if you're trying to get a capital raising away. Uh, Peloton's the example I love, which is loosely described on Twitter as an exercise bike with an iPad on it um, and other people will call it technology stock. How would you define tech? How do you feel people should look at it? Are there specific parts of the tech sector? You've talked about software and I think that's such a good example, but you know, what are the things that people should be looking at rather than just going all tech is roughly in the same category? Yeah, it's, oh my God, such a good question um, because you can come at it the other way, which is, you know, I, I dare you to name a company that sort of isn't evolving into a, a tech company in some form or another because, you know, if you think about, and we're seeing this increasingly in artificial intelligence, which is a sort of a, a whole kind of related but separate topic, like there, there isn't, if you looked at any economic agent in the world, so, you know, a household, a consumer, a government, um, a corporate uh, in any industry or in any country, and then if you thought about their, you know, the different line items on their sort of income statement, so to speak, uh, and particularly the different line items of expenses that, that they have, so corporate expenses, it could be cost of goods sold, it could be, you know, R&D, sales and marketing, um, overhead, it's really hard to think of a line item that could not be affected or improved or optimized to some degree by software, by technology, and particularly by artificial intelligence. So through that lens, you know, you, you, you can sort of, you sort of got to stretch your mind a little bit, but you can see an argument to suggest that, well, nearly all businesses are therefore becoming tech businesses to various degrees. I know that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but <laughs> I think there's a bit of truth to that. I think it's a really interesting answer. Um, you know, I work in a bank technically and yet really trading is, you know, almost exclusively digital business now, right? <laughs> Some, you know, yeah. The people who matter most are the ones who sit behind a screen and build something for people to use on a screen, uh, despite the fact that it was not done in that way 25, 30 years ago. Uh, it's quite fascinating. You know, banking is a great example where people think of it as where you walk into a branch, but the vast majority of transactions take place on a computer, right? Yeah. And I mean, insurers are using artificial intelligence to price risk. Um, you know, we're a, a very, you know, simple uh, funds management business and, and you know, we use um, artificial intelligence tools to um, process company filings. 
out in the Pilbara, you know, the mining companies use, you know, driverless vehicles, driverless trains and stuff like that. I mean, there's, it's an obvious statement, but there, there is, you know, incredibly um, powerful technology and software just everywhere and in increasingly so. So, um, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess it means that tech is just increasingly becoming a, a fairly meaningless umbrella term to mean just about anything. <laughs> Okay, well, starting with that, then <laughs> Every, everything is tech. All things are tech, and all yeah. things have some tech component to them. Uh, anyone with even half an eye on US, US markets, and I will say, listeners and our investor base definitely do have a far better feel for global markets now than they would have had ten years ago. We always talk about the home bias in Australia uh, with investing, and it's typical around the world. But we seem to have a stronger home bias than many other countries. Even with half an eye on US markets, you would be aware that a number of the big name tech stocks have absolutely plummeted in the last six months. So can you talk us through what's changed since our last conversation? How big some of those falls have been? What do you think's driving it? What's happening? Yeah, so I think there's been two really big dynamics playing out over the last little while. And I get I guess defined little while as, you know, I guess the last six months say, um, cause that's where the sort of the action's really been. And I think most tech companies are experienced experiencing either one or both of these. So one, one is, um, an increase in interest rate expectations. And I'm sure we'll sort of come back to that. Um, but of course, all else being equal, as we said before, if, if, if interest rate expectations are structurally increasing, then, um, fair valuation multiples that should apply to earnings powers should should decrease. Uh, and just the way the maths of that works is it sort of penalizes businesses that sort of have more growth or the value of the business is sort of tied up more in, in, in the future than in the present. Um, so that tends to affect uh, tech businesses disproportionately more than, um, you know, non-tech businesses, say. Um, the other the other big dynamic that's playing out, and we're seeing not everywhere, but in some pockets of the, the tech landscape, is really just that you know, good old fashioned, you know, stocks were overvalued, and now they're coming back down to earth. I mean, in in simple English, what what's you know, stock overvalued actually means is that the market's expectations for future growth in revenues and growth in earnings um, were inflated. And in many cases, what's happened, I think what's happened in many cases is that the, what caused the inflation to a large degree was, you know, you had a, a sort of a pull forward in demand post COVID and Peloton's like you, you brought up Peloton before cracking example of this, you know, everyone's in lockdown, they buy the Peloton bike, pull forward in demand. And so the, the growth numbers of Peloton look amazing and the market has just kind of extrapolated that to a certain degree and they've just sort of over extrapolated. And then what's happened is we here we are in 2022 and you know it's it's much easier to inflate uh <laughs> revenue and earnings expectations than it is to actually inflate true revenues and earnings um for a company. And and you sort of they've found out the hard way that you know when you deliver results that don't uh, live up to the expectations of the markets, then then those expectations are instantly downgraded, and that is a long-winded way of saying that the stock price falls. So, 
I think you, I think you're seeing a bit of both. And I think the, a bit of a practical hint is that when, when stocks move around in between their earnings results, it's often not always, but it's often more the macro kind of driving that. And then how stocks perform when they deliver their results um, is typically more a reflection of what's going on fundamentally relative to expectations. So like we did, we saw some businesses like, like Microsoft, like Amazon, uh, like Alphabet, uh, even though they're, they've been caught up in the sort of the downturn, um, the general tech downturn over the last three months or so, when they reported, their stocks were actually up quite significantly. So it, it sort of says to us, you know, actually the, the underlying business is, is doing very, very well, but, you know, they're not immune to the sort of the general sort of flows of the markets uh, in between their results. You talked about expectations several times just then, which I think is so helpful for people to remember that it's what the market expects to happen that's in the price rather than necessarily what does happen and then they have to rethink it all when the results come out. When you're talking about interest rates, we actually haven't really seen the beginning of the rate hiking cycle. We've just heard a lot about the rate hiking cycle and the Fed uh, in the US is doing an exceptional job of managing expectations. They've flagged pretty clearly what their intentions are. So if rates move as expected, and you might like to talk about what expectations are currently, do you see yep. the tech sector coming under more pressure? So, uh, look, I think if rates play out as expected, and by the way, it's 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 something like, I won't get the dates exactly right, but people can look it up. It's something like, you know, seven or eight interest rate hikes by, say, the middle of next year by the Fed. So call it like plus 200 basis points or 2% of, you know, incremental interest rate um, by the Fed by, say, the middle of next year. That's what's essentially priced in. Um, so if I think if that played out just perfectly as as per what is priced in today, at least from a fundamental valuation perspective, uh, I think we should be approximately done already, as in the the you know the, <laughs> the pain in the tech sector should actually reflect that already. Uh, and I mean a helpful rule of thumb is on our analysis anyway, like take, if you took a business like Microsoft and all else being equal, like forget about any extent to which it might already be undervalued or anything like that. If you just said all else equal, the discount rate were to go up by 1% or, you know, interest rates were to increase by 1% uniformly across every maturity, which is again, a little bit hypothetical, but let's just say that happens. Then, you know, Microsoft should be down by say 15%. So, and I guess if you, you know, if you double that, then you could approximately, approximately double that decline. So I guess if, if that, if that played out, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to go, but I mean, a lot has sort of already, already happened over the last three months. There, there are also pretty strong arguments, um, we think anyway, around a scenario in which the these tech equities have already um, overshot to the downside. And, and for reasons, I'm just talking about the, the interest rate headwind here. So like as strange as it may sound, like the Fed may not actually even be able to complete those seven or eight 
interest rate increases over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, which I know it's, it sounds so strange because the Fed hasn't really even started yet. But when we just look at the, just the facts, so we're not trying to make forecasts or anything like that. Um, we see a couple of facts, a few compelling facts to suggest that um, it could be harder than, than they think to sort of affect those interest rates. So not to derail this conversation into like a macro one, but just very quickly, like the very strong economic growth that we saw in the US over the last few months, it was up around six or 7%, which by the way, if, if that was the true rate of economic growth, I mean, that, that would absolutely point to inflation because I mean, inflation really results from economies growing at unsustainable rates over and above their capacity. But when you sort of strip through the various components, like the overwhelming majority, like about three quarters of that growth was to do with inventory buildups, which, you know, is real, except that it's a very non-persistent source of economic growth and will kind of just wash out pretty quickly. So true underlying growth, nowhere near as strong as kind of what the headlines say. Another point, like throughout the course of this year, just from the year on year base effect alone, like the inflation rate is going to slow really quite significantly. Another data point, China, the world's second largest economy, is already, as we speak, in an industrial recession. And if anything, is looking to start um, more stimulus. They haven't really yet, but but that's kind of where they're at. So it's, it's this strange dichotomy where the world's biggest economy is meant to be sort of in an inflationary environment and the world's second largest economy um, is, is meant to be in a disinflationary environment. Another point is that US households are now getting totally squeezed through the lens of wage growth minus the growth in core expenses, like um, your cost of your mortgage, the cost of your healthcare, the cost of energy. Um, that growth rate has now turned negative. So in a sense, like the <laughs> the profit margin, if you like, of the households has, has now kind of gone negative. Um, so that's not great for a, a, a very consumption-led economy um, like the US. So we're seeing all of these things that that really call into question this, this, this premise that, oh, my God, inflation is here, it's structural, rates are going to have to go up um, really in a sig significant and sustained way. And then we also step back and say, well, let's say all of that's just wrong and rates are going up. And let's say they're going up by the full 2%, say, and they stay there. And that's just the new world that we live in. So if that's true, then mathematically, because the federal government in the US has about round numbers like $30 trillion of debt, outstanding US dollars, that means that in the fullness of time, as, as all the treasury bonds are refinanced at the higher rate, the federal government will have an extra about $600 billion US dollars per year of higher interest expense that they need to, they need to cover that. So they need to either cut spending or increase taxes, essentially withdraw money from the economy to pay that higher interest expense, which is like a, you can think of it as like a $600 billion per year negative stimulus package every single year for the rest of time. And it's just impossible. Like there's no way in our, again, in our simple minds, there's just no way that the US economy could withstand that and would be back into recession really, really quickly under those conditions. So we sort of we sort of put all put all that together and we say, well, okay, if you do get one to two percent, okay, maybe it's already priced in. What is the probability of actually sustaining that two percent 
very, very low in our view. And actually, if you if you look at this is the final sort of technical point I make. If you, if you look at the um, the yield curve in the US, which is sort of like saying what's what's the interest rate at different maturities, at the short maturities, interest the bond yields or interest rates have already gone up by about 1.5%, which makes sense. That reflects those expectations um, that are priced into the market. At the long end, so say 30 years, if you're lending to the US government for 30 years, over the last three months, that rate has only gone up by about a quarter of a percent. So that's, again, a sort of a long-winded way of saying the bond markets also agree that it's going to be very, very difficult to sustain these higher levels of interest rates in the US economy for all of those reasons I just described. And so if, if all of that is true, it sort of says that, well, actually, the fact that, you know, some of these businesses, these tech businesses are already down 15, 20, 30. I mean, in some cases, they're down 60, 70 or 80 percent, um, at least from an interest rate perspective. It is much more likely, um, we think, that that's, that's already overshot the mark um, than, than undershot the mark there. You literally just answered my next question, but in the most beautiful way. So I'm not going to complain about it. It's, that's an incredibly useful way of looking at the outlook. Uh, the most recent podcast we did was with the NAB Markets team, uh, who talked mostly about Australia, but also about the US, and also had fairly modest expectations about how sustainable rate rises were. So it's interesting that you feel they've already been priced in pretty aggressively in the stock market. I was going to ask if you think anything's been oversold, which you've alluded to. Do you think anything's been undersold? There are companies that are unprofitable, have been, uh, you know, raising money for a decade or more uh, in order to keep going. And people have been happy to throw money at them, right, in a zero interest rate environment. They're yet to make yeah. meaningful profits. Do you think there's a day of reckoning coming for some of those companies? Uh, well, I think so. Uh, really, I think the day of reckoning is already here. Um, seems like every, every day ending in Y is a new day of reckoning for, um, for many of these businesses, at least over the last three months or so. Yeah, as I said, I mean, some of these, some of these really growthy, sort of profitless growthy businesses are down, you know, some are down 60, some are down 70, some are down 80% from their recent peaks. And we think for a lot of them, they won't be returning because I think, you know, those prior valuations were really premised on a set of expectations, which essentially were believed to be true, say, six months ago and are no longer believed to be the case. So in a sense, it wasn't real value six months ago. It wasn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't reflective of true earnings power. It was just reflective of, um, in many cases, a, a really set of great circumstances post-COVID being extrapolated into the future. And that, you know, we've just sort of found in many cases that that scenario just will not materialise. Um, I mean, now some will. I mean, that's the million-dollar question: which ones will, which ones won't. But I think I think a lot of them will not. So, yeah, that, that's that's the best I can do with that. I think you know, for a lot of younger listeners, they've not been through a period where uh, there's a swathe of high-profile 
collapses. And in the scenario where they've seen a collapse, it will be fraud or something like that. Um, mm. But you and I both remember the big ones. At time. I was a bit too young to remember the tech wreck, but the people around me talked about it a lot when I was first starting in the industry. Uh, and certainly the GFC where there were just significant failures in companies that people never imagined could fail. Uh, and uh, for those of us who've seen it before, you always wonder what, which will be the big ones. If uh, if there is a day of reckoning, we wonder whether it's coming or not. Yeah, think- and I think I think real quick, I mean, I think, uh, and we touched on this, I think the last podcast that we did um, some time ago, but I mean, when you're playing in that world of investing in profitless businesses, um, by definition, it's not about today's earnings because there are none. It's all about what's coming in the future. And so it really does become a game of mapping out the different possible scenarios and then assigning probabilities to each scenario. And, you know, even today, it may well be that that some of the really optimistic um, bullish scenarios for many of these businesses that have sold off um, is, a, is a non-zero probability of that scenario playing out. It's just that it's a lot lower probability than it was six months ago. And, but like, if, if that's the game that you play, you know, profitless growth, all you're really doing is you're, you're playing that game of, you know, I think I can assess probabilities of future scenarios better than the market. And maybe you can, or maybe you can't, but you, you can't really sort of rest your hat on, oh, well, I know no matter what happens, I've got at least, you know, this earnings power, you know, paying, generating these cash flows, you're paying out these dividends, um, and that's going to sort of underwrite, you know, some sort of downside protection or as, as Buffett calls it, you know, margin of safety um, if I get the uh, the probabilities of the upsides wrong. Yeah, 100%. Uh, for investors in Australia, I think they're starting to see that play out in the buy now, pay later space, which is... right. Our tech, (laughs) the tech that everyone's very keen on here with a couple of other exceptions. Do you see other sectors coming under the same kind of pressure that tech's coming under at the moment? Coming back to our first conversation where we were saying everything's got a tech element to it. But do you see that other scenarios are also feeling a bit of heat? So um, most sectors have, have kind of sold off a bit um, throughout the course of the year. Tech's definitely been hit the worst. Um, so keep the numbers around um, year-to-date tech, um, as it's defined within the S&P 500, is, is down about 14%, whereas, like, take energy, energy's up 22%, and everything else is either sort of flat to down. So, I mean, it's a real you know, sector rotation or, or real difference um, in, in short-term fortunes. Um, I, I guess it says that if to do to have done really well over the first two months of this year, you needed to, you know, short Amazon and buy, you know, an oil company or something like that, I suppose. But that trade would have worked for the last two months. So we're, we have a very high degree of confidence that in the fullness of time over the next 10 years, say, um, that would be a losing trade. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, <laughs> an interesting point to make. We're seeing some. Um, so it all comes down to your time horizon, basically. <laughs> it does indeed. So I'm going to ask you the final question, which is really where investors need to start thinking. We most definitely have investors who've been holding off buying into tech because of the valuations, even if they believe there's some good quality companies in there. They've 
Very nervous. If I generalize about the investors I talk to, they don't like paying high multiples for things. They don't like buying things. They feel expensive. Um, And we see that even domestically. We've seen a lot of enthusiasm for CSL lately because it's become much less expensive in inverted commas. And suddenly it's the sort of thing they're happy to buy. Um, So what is your advice for investors who've been holding off buying into tech I'm going to use that, the broad term tech <laughs> yeah. internationally Look, think, because of the valuation. Honestly, I mean, we really do believe that this is a, you know, very attractive buying opportunity, but we say that on a very selective basis. So when, when we say it's an attractive buying opportunity, we're not saying that you can go and buy, you know, it's it's logical to go and buy every single tech company out there today. But what we're saying is that we think right now is a situation uh, in which some of the world's highest quality businesses of any sector have been sold off unreasonably. And so now you have a chance to pick up businesses which say sell their customers mission critical services, um, have very little competition, generate non cyclical cash flows, um, even have pricing power should the inflationary environment persist. So there's some protection there um, and have very, very large and, and high probability growth options as well. And the sorts of businesses that would fulfill these criteria uh, would actually be businesses like the hyperscalers. So, you know, like your Amazons, Microsoft's, uh, and alphabets. So our advice would be to, not that we can give advice, but we would say um, investors should give consideration to those sorts of businesses uh, at these stock price levels. Andrew, you guys at Montica published some great research and the way you've articulated the challenge for tech at the moment is the sorts of things that you can put in the hands of investors, which is immensely valuable. How do people keep up to date with your work and what you guys are working on? Yeah, we um, we publish all of our insights and, and thoughts on these sorts of topics uh, every month in a newsletter that we just send out to everyone's inboxes. Um, we call it the Montica Monocle uh, and anyone can subscribe. So if you just go to montica.com, so that's M-O-N-T-A-K-A.com and there's a big button on the top right-hand side that says subscribe. You just click that and put in your details and then you'll receive our uh, our monocle every month to your inbox. Coming to you from all over the world, as it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Mackin from Montego Global Investments, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback and great questions. Uh, finding out about global tech was one of them. So please just email us at yourwealthatnav.com.au and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.